Welcome to the Tallyman Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. Today, we're going to be continuing our series about the upcoming voice referendum. We'll be discussing the history and practice of elected institutions that represent Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in Australia, ones that exist today and ones that have existed in the past. How do they work and how long have they been around? My guest today is Alison Holland. Alison is an Associate Professor in the Department of History and Archaeology at Macquarie University. Alison is a leading researcher in Australian Indigenous history in the 20th century specifically, and is currently writing a history of ATSIC, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission. Hello, Alison. Hello, Ben. So this podcast is about Australian elections. That's what we talk about here. As part of that remit, we often discuss the bodies that are created through elections and broader principles of how democracy works. And, you know, normally, look, we spend a lot of time talking about federal elections, state elections, big, dramatic elections with millions of people voting. But, you know, we've often had times where I've talked about local council elections or some quite major elections that happen overseas, but maybe don't get quite enough attention in Australia. So today, we're not really talking about the referendum that's about to happen, but we're talking about if a voice is created and it's elected, as one of our guests previously was very confident that it would be an elected body, how do those kinds of institutions work in Australia? Such a concept of an elected body representing Indigenous people is not new, nor is it limited to the federal level. The Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Commission, or ATSIC, is probably the most famous such body, and it was abolished almost 20 years ago in 2004. But other elected bodies have existed at other levels of government. Alison, you've been researching the history of ATSIC. Was it a new and novel thing for ATSIC to hold direct elections amongst Indigenous people when it was founded? No, no, not at all. Um, Before ATSIC, there was um, at least two elected Indigenous representative bodies that had been in existence. So there was the National Aboriginal Consultative Committee that was set up. It was the sort of first representative body that was set up under Whitlam in 1973 under the sort of banner of self-determination. That was an elected body. It had 41 members. Um, I think they represented something like in the order of 800 Aboriginal communities. When that was disbanded um, and the National Aboriginal Conference was put in place under Malcolm Fraser in 1977, that was also an elected body. So it, it consisted of 35 members and it was a different sort of setup in that it had state branches and then those state branches elected a 10-member national executive. So there was a template Uh, already in existence when ATSIC came about. The difference between them, though, was that the first two bodies were sort of administratively put together. So, you know, it was just governments who sort of established these bodies within the Department of Aboriginal Affairs. ATSIC was different because it absorbed the Department of Aboriginal Affairs, so it actually became the new official body and it was legislated for. So it was the first time that we had a legislated body. Which then meant later down the track, and we've talked a bit about this in the context of the voice referendum, that part of the intention is that the voice is enshrined in the constitution, but ATSIC was already more enshrined than its predecessors because eventually when the Howard government was elected, they weren't fans of ATSIC, but they weren't able to abolish it for about eight years because they didn't have the parliamentary support to do it. That's exactly right. So having it legislated for was an absolute key development at the time and, of course, now having it enshrined in the Constitution takes it another step further in terms of enabling and keeping a permanent body in place. So it sounds like those first two bodies, they were elected but they weren't necessarily elected by individual Indigenous people casting a vote, right? Certainly that first body founded under the Whitlam government, it sounded like effectively local communities collectively would 
would choose people or would cast a vote in some way. Whereas I know ATSIC are definitely, at least at the local, at the regional level, um, it was individual people casting a ballot to elect representatives. No, they were all elected in that way, oh, right. yeah, um, th- but just slightly differently. You know, for example, the National Aboriginal Consultative Committee in 73 was the first time, right, that this ha- had happened. Indigenous people had just got the vote in the early 60s, but the then Aboriginal Affairs Minister Gordon Bryant realised that actually a lot of Indigenous people had not necessarily enrolled on the Australian electoral roll. So he, in that case, he actually created a separate Indigenous national electoral roll. So those people um, who were on that role could vote in that election. And then they went to a different system under the National Aboriginal Conference, which they also used under ATSIC. So they moved away from this separate Aboriginal role. In fact, this has been a cause of critique, actually. So Jerry Hand, who was the minister in Hawke's government when they put ATSIC in place, they wanted to move away from this idea of a separate Indigenous role because they basically said that if you're creating a separate kind of race-based role like that, we don't want to do that. But, of course, we need to make sure that we maximise the number of Indigenous and we have to make sure that it's Indigenous people who are voting in this. Voters filled out a voter card um, and this was printed on an envelope and the voter had to certify on the envelope whether he or she was an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person and they were enrolled in a federal electoral roll. So that's how it ran in the the National Aboriginal Conference and that's how it ran for ATSIC. Uh, There was a liaison officer who then, uh, an Aboriginal liaison officer uh, at the voting booth who then determined whether that person was eligible or not to vote and would make a mark on the voter envelope too. So if that Aboriginal liaison officer had said, well, no, I don't really know you, you don't belong to the community, then they would say, no, this person is not able to vote. That person then had seven days to produce evidence of their Aboriginality. If they could, then fair enough, the vote was counted. If they couldn't and they were still discounted, they could still appeal on that decision. So slightly complicated, but it's an interesting development. And I'm aware that in the 90s, I think in Tasmania in particular, there was some controversy. It's been a little while since I read a journal article on this, but they did experiment with having a separate role again but I'm not sure where that where that concluded. But most of the history of ATSIC, uh, it was the you had to be on the federal roll and then have some demonstration, some proof, some acknowledgement of Aboriginality to have your vote counted. So effectively, every vote was a declaration vote to to get into the AEC parlance, where you know, as happens at a federal level, if you want to cast a ballot and they can't find you on the roll, you fill out your ballot paper, you put it in an envelope and they check later right. to, to verify that you're eligible to vote. So effectively that system was applied to every voter under ATSIC. That's right. And it's really important to understand that these uh, elections were voluntary. So that's a really important dynamic here. We'll talk in a minute about some of the state bodies, but I know, for example, the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria, which exists now, um, has its own separate enrolment process as well. And I think that's sometimes been a bit of a, an issue of, of controversy is how much are they relying on the existing enrolment procedures versus having their own kind of independent procedures themselves, which obviously is administrative more more difficult, means you might not get as many people in the rolls. Probably makes it easier when it actually comes time to vote though, because that whole procedure of casting a vote sounds a little bit more onerous than than what it would have if we were, you and I were just casting a vote at a federal level. Well, exactly. And I, you know, there was critique at that at the time that it was all too much and it was onerous. Someone like Gary Foley was quite critical of the elections in ATSIC precisely for that reason. He actually thought that we should have a separate Indigenous role. And he actually said that the elections for the National Aboriginal Consultative Committee were much more successful in terms of voter turnout than they subsequently became under the other bodies. 
So it's been 19 years since ATSIC was abolished. At a federal level, a lot of people would be very unfamiliar with a body like this. And federal politics, of course, is where people pay most their attention. I mean, I was 18 when ATSIC was abolished. It's been a long time. But these sort of bodies still exist now, right? At a state level, at a local level, there's lots of institutions that are elected by uh, Indigenous people in Australia. That's right. I mean, there is a veritable um, sort of ecosystem of elected sort of representative bodies throughout Indigenous Australia of various kinds, community-based, land council-based, various uh, native title bodies, for example. There is a vast number of what we call corporations. So there's a lot of Indigenous corporations in existence. Uh, Actually, in preparation for this interview, I actually looked up just how many there were. So as, as of June 2022, there were 3,500 Indigenous corporations and these included 243 registered native title body corporations. This idea of sort of establishing a corporation, in, in other words, to enable social and economic, you know, advancement was very much a development out of the Whitlam era. Indigenous organisations um, had to become corporate organisations in order to give them a kind of legal entity. And of course, the corporation is the sum total of all the bodies. It's not just one or two individuals. It's actually, it, it then becomes the thing. You know, the corporation is the legal entity. But there is really just a vast network of organisations that represent Indigenous people, uh, not at the federal level, that have been in existence for a long time, at least since the 70s. Community-based organisations that more often than not rest on elections like this, uh, electing representatives to sit on boards or bodies that oversee, you know, the activities of the corporation or whatever, so forth. There's even the sort of the, the, the recent, the Coalition of Peaks, of course, which is a non-government organisation consisting of uh, something in the order of about 80, I think, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community control organisations. They're quite different. They're not necessarily representative bodies. They're, they're, they're mostly the legal and the health and the housing, you know, the peak bodies that deal with those those issues in, in Indigenous communities. Um, you've got a lot of native title bodies, as I've already suggested. And then the land councils, okay, so we have, of course, the Land Rights Act, the Northern Territory Land Rights Act in 1976-77, brought into being the Northern Land Council and the Central Land Council in the 70s. Uh, And then, of course, states then introduced their own land rights legislation um, and they developed their own land councils as part of that legislative framework. So, right across the country, there are land councils in every state, you know, and sometimes several. I think there's something like in the order of six in Queensland. And again, there's a Northern Queensland Land Council and a Central Queensland Land Council. And again, they operate as elected bodies, you know. The New South Wales Land Council is a really big one. It's a network of 120 local Aboriginal land councils. And then they're sort of divided into sort of nine regions. My understanding is there are elections for those bodies, right? Like, I don't know if they work exactly the same way ATIC did, but what do you know about how they work, who gets to participate, who runs them. I don't know a lot about the local land council election process at all. The New South Wales one is an example I know where you've got these local Aboriginal land councils, 120 of them, in nine regions throughout New South Wales. But the land council itself, the peak body, uh, has nine councillors that are democratically elected. And again, it's by registered vote members of the local land council. So... You have to be a registered member of the land council and then you, you vote to vote in uh, a councillor that sits on the, the council to do what the council is, is supposed to do um, in terms of the operation of the Aboriginal Land Rights Act in New South Wales. Um, it's obviously very local and, as I say, you have to be a registered member of a local land council to cast a vote. While the ADSIC elections might have been conducted in a way, I, I don't know, I think they were conducted by the AEC. They were, 
but were these ones more you know there's there's a plethora of local community organizations that conduct elections and often are run by private organizations and stuff so i'm guessing you would have a lot of that for for these organizations and then we also have you know it's been 6 years since the uluru statement and it's taken the federal government a while to catch up. And at a state level, some of these bodies now exist. I mean, we've got the First People's Assembly of Victoria. Um, there's there's a body in the ACT that's been around for a while whose name eludes me. And then the South Australian government has actually founded something called A Voice um, that was founded a few months ago, which um, I was a little bit involved in the process of giving feedback on the draft legislation around the electoral system. But it it has a kind of... A structure where it does resemble ATSIC in one sense, where um, it w- was going to found a bunch of regional voices, which would be directly elected by Indigenous people in those areas. And then those, the chairs of those bodies would come together and form like a state body that would be able to like address parliament and, you know, speak to ministers and, and all of that kind of stuff. So so in that sense, there is that bit of a two-tier structure. I wouldn't be shocked if we were to see something similar if a voice was established at a federal level where rather than – it feels like, I mean, if you were to have national elections – you're having to run, you're having to get yourself known to a lot of people in order to run for election. And it costs a certain amount of money. You know, there's communication needs. Whereas if you're just electing people within a certain geographical area, it can be more amongst people you know, and then those people can come together and make a decision about a national body. So I wouldn't be shocked if they do that sort of two-tier structure or they just elect geographically local representatives in different parts of the country. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, we don't know, of course, what the body will look like, but I guess the point of today's discussion really is that there are there is a lot of kind of templates and a lot of precursors to, to work from. Um, and of course, the Karma Langton report mapped all of that out. Yeah. I mean, I think the South Australian example is a really interesting one because it's a state-based response to the Uluru Statement from the heart. And it's interesting there, you know, the South Australian government actually developed these things called Aboriginal representative bodies, so they already have these representative bodies and they mostly include things like native title corporations, land councils and land trusts and so forth. And these bodies are already working within the sort of local kind of heritage space, you know, in terms of protecting Indigenous interests in the heritage space. Um, and it's very much about dispute management and heritage management and con- consultation and so forth. But, yeah, the South Australia, so, that, that, so there's a lot of this sort of stuff sort of sitting there ready to sort of be able to use the sort of systems that are already in place. But my understanding of the South Australian voice was what you just said, which is it will consist of, I think it was something like six local First Nation voices, so six regional voices, and then two people from each of those regional voices would then come up to and be elected and comprise then the sort of state-level voice. So, yeah, it's pretty much a two-stage process, Yeah. And I guess one of the things about these bodies, right, is they have different jobs, right? So the big difference between ATSIC and the voice to parliament, ATSIC did have a role, at least in theory, of expressing the opinions of Indigenous people, but it also had this other role of service delivery and, like, effectively running a part of the federal government. And that seems to have been a big, maybe it dominated the other role, and the voice to parliament is very much about just being about expressing views and presenting opinions. It's not a service delivery organisation. No, that's right. So it's very different. In some ways, it looks a little bit more like the older ones. 
yeah? The older advisory bodies, the, the National Aboriginal Consultative uh, Committee and the National Aboriginal Conference um, in that regard because at SIC what made it really different was that it actually had you know, that there was a level of self-determination in the sense that they had program delivery responsibilities. So, you know, the federal government would um, give an allocation of funding, okay, every year. And then uh, the, the point was that they, in consultation with the regional councils, would determine where that money was spent. So that was a really critical part of what they did. And it, and it was deliberately designed to get away from the other kinds of bodies, I have to say, because there was a sense sometimes that those bodies didn't go far enough or it actually constrained what Indigenous people could do. It had program delivery and this will be very different. It won't have any of that. There was, I have to say, sort of by the mid-1990s, Loitcha O'Donoghue, who was the first, first chairperson and longest running, she was there from when it began in 1990 and she left in 1996. She was of the view that it was a bit of a poison chalice in a way having these this program delivery because you know, they had this allocation of funding and then they could forever be kind of criticised for not spending the money or doing something wrong with the money or doing something with the money that other people thought they shouldn't be doing. All of that sort of stuff was constantly... So this question's accountability dogged that organisation. And just before she left being the first chairperson, she actually wondered, she said, I, I wonder whether what we need to do is just become an advisory body, you know, is just so that we can actually just alleviate the sort of questions around accountability that they were absolutely dogged with and actually made their work incredibly difficult. You know, she's sort of saying, actually, some of our most powerful work is in our capacity to be able to advise governments. Um, and they, there was a lot of examples of that. I mean, the native title legislation comes to mind just after Mabo. Arguably, we wouldn't have a native title act if it hadn't been for the role of ATSIC in advising the then Labor government about what they wanted. They didn't get everything, of course, that they wanted. And, of course, there's a lot of criticism about the Act and there's a lot of criticism about the process. But at the end of the day, it wouldn't be there at all, I don't think, uh, unless ATSIC drove a particularly hard line, actually, about what they were prepared to put up with and what they, what they were prepared to concede and what they were prepared not to. And they did that by, um, it's, it was quite an interesting exercise actually, but they did that by making not just their national voice be heard, but then they, they had, it was a really interesting moment where they kind of banded up with all these regional bodies all right across Australia. So all the land councils and the legal council, all the services and so forth, they all came together um, in this moment. And it was a really kind of interesting moment of kind of unison and advice <laughs> that actually had at least some sort of reasonable outcome, as problematic as it has become in some ways. But, um, yeah, so I think that was a really powerful moment. And it's lauded in, in ATSIC sort of uh, memory, you know, that moment is lauded as, a, as an example. I mean, I think even Noel Pearson speaks about it in the current climate at the moment with the debates at the moment about the voice. He, he does, I've heard him refer back to that moment in 93, 94 where they were able to actually basically knock on Keating's door and say, we're not going to go until you've heard us. There's something I find really fascinating about the debate right now around the voice and the ecosystem federally of people who are prominent Indigenous leaders who are um, on the landscape. I mean, first of all, there's a lot more Indigenous federal MPs than there used to be, and they have a wide variety of views, right? You can Pick your favourite from, you know, you've got Jacinta Price and Lydia Thorpe and then you've got uh, Dorinda Cox and a number of Labor MPs, Linda Burney in the middle. Um, and so, you know, people with all sorts of different political opinions can find an Indigenous federal MP that who has views that are a bit similar to theirs, but they don't necessarily represent 
Indigenous people, right? It's good that they're there. It's good that federal parliament is diverse, but they ultimately, they represent their electorates, they represent their parties, their states, various things like that. And then you've got the other voices that are out there. You've got Warren Mundine and Noel Pearson and Megan Davis and people like that. And um, I think it's really interesting about how we use elections, we use democratic procedures sometimes to resolve disagreements, both to create bodies that maybe represent multiple views, but go, who's actually like, who does actually represent the views that are the most dominant? And right now, we don't really have any way to work that out, right? People get to go out there and speak, and they speak on, but not that people shouldn't be like, just because you lose an election doesn't mean that the media shouldn't listen to you or that it's not of interest, of course. Um, and I think a well-functioning voice, uh, and I mean, if if the referendum does pass, there'll be a lot of conversation about the voting system used for it and how big it is. I've been talking to some people about how, you know, probably a larger voice would mean more seats on the voice would mean a more diverse range of people getting elected and more range of views represented. Um, but it would allow for an ability to say, well, these are the people that actually speak for the majority. This is the view that is currently dominant. Give that a go for a bit. See how it goes. And we don't have that right now. We're kind of, we're kind of a bit stranded. Totally, totally agree. Yeah, a cynical bit of me sometimes thinks that some of the people that have come out as no no activists are people who think that probably their point of view wouldn't win in an election amongst Indigenous people. But I mean, who can say? That's the whole point. That's right. I think ATSIC was the last biggest thing in this space, right? I mean, and we have we've been without something like that for twenty years, as you point out um, uh, now, and I think you can tell. I think that the the kind of policy landscape over the last 20 years has really done a dive. To be honest with you, to be frank, it's been a mess. You're right. We're, in some ways, it's, it's difficult terrain for us um, because, as you say, the Indigenous politicians who are members of parliament, as you say, it's, it's fantastic that we have that diversity, but they're there to represent the party line um, and their constituents. And so it's not the same kind of thing at all. We definitely need an Indigenous body of some kind that sits and, you know, I mean, we have examples of them too around the world. I mean, I was just reading about the, the Sami parliaments in the Scandinavian countries. The one in Norway, I think, has been operating since about 1989. So at the same stage that ASIC was established in Australia, they, they developed a parliament, the Sami parliament. And, you know, it it operates alongside the other parliament and it's been in existence for a long time and it works really quite well in terms of advising about, you know, matters distinct to Sami people and helping to protect cultural heritage and so forth. Um, like it's nothing to be sort of scared of or anything. I mean, it comes about as well. I mean, I, I, I have to say I really disagree with, as a historian in this space, I disagree with these arguments about saying it's race-based, which is very much the no campaign and it's absolutely not race-based. It's actually historically based. That's what it is and that's why you can see around the world Indigenous groups are attempting to do similar things with the resources that they've got with within the settler states that they have to deal with. You know, there's, there's various attempts to be heard and this is because of historical dispossession and injustice. You know, we have a litany of experience in this country of corruption, mismanagement, misconduct at a federal level, a state level, local councils. Councils get sacked. Uh, state and federal parliaments, they go to elections and those people don't run for re-election. We have ICACs. We have all these things. All of those institutions still exist, right? I mean, sometimes councils get amalgamated or whatever, but those exist. And that was very much one of the arguments for the abolition of ATSIC was supposedly around this dysfunction of it. And I think, I think probably 
from what you said today, there's there's also an argument about really was it dysfunctional as much as is said, but that the idea that the solution to that is just to not have any kind of democratic representation. What are your thoughts on that? That's a big question, but look, it is the question really around ATSIC. I mean, if anyone in Australia has any vague memory of ATSIC, um, then you remember the kind of um, contention that was around it in the late 1990s, early 2000s. And, and as I said a moment ago about accountability, from the moment it started, it was literally dogged by questions of accountability. And when Howard abolished it, you're right, it was all these sorts of claims that were made about it was wrought, the financial rorts, you know, that they were had, they had all this money that was given to them and they kind of wasted it and where's he where is the you know the, the good work that they should have done and all of this sort of stuff and the work that I've done shows me that that was just frankly it was wrong um ATSIC as I said in my conversation piece only ever spent 50% of the total federal government budget so only 50% went to ATSIC and of that 50% that they got on an annual basis two-thirds of that money went to dedicated programs the Commonwealth Development Employment Program and the Community Housing Program. That were their two big flagships. Two-thirds of that income went went to those things. And then they had to try and sort of facilitate community, you know, communities in other ways beyond that. And then that, that was actually one of the problems, that they were so strapped financially, actually. That's, that's the truth of the matter. They were strapped financially and yet they were trying to please all the communities with what they, what they needed. And, of course, that then developed because they couldn't that then developed a critique out there in the regions that they weren't they weren't for us they weren't looking after our interests and they talked about the fact that they became instead of supplementary funding which was the way they were built they when they were put into place it was always that atsic was going to be a supplementary funder of state territory and the federal government so all those agencies out there you know under those umbrellas um, who had to provide services and so forth to Indigenous people, didn't. <laughs> they didn't do it very effectively. So ATSIC then got the blame. So they were always up against it. You know, they were constantly up against it. And that just became, and I have to say, the reason I think that it, it was enabled was because ATSIC started that way. So when ATSIC was born in 1989, it came off the back of already claims in the Department of Aboriginal Affairs that it was dysfunctional and that a lot of that was around rorts and misspent money and all that sort of stuff was already there. So ATSIC kind of inherited that. So it already started on the back foot. And then there was a sort of uh, a kind of rhetoric that developed around its complete wastefulness. The, the reality was that it wasn't a supplementary funder. It was a substitution funder, but it never had enough to cover everything. And that's what makes its work really remarkable because it actually funded, if you look at the key programs that it managed to fund, I mean, it's behind a lot of the developments that we now know, Indigenous television, Indigenous radio, um, broadcasting, um, Bangara dance, like a lot of the kind of cultural things, a lot of sporting, you know, uh, sporting developments as well came through at six support. I'm sorry to say the narrative is really quite wrong and we need a new narrative to understand because actually with the limited funds that it had it was actually a remarkable institution which goes against the grain of most people's memories but I hope my history will help to tell a different sort of story. Well I'm looking forward to reading whatever you put together at the end of this process. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room podcast. Thank you Alison for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having me Ben. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. 
If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Mastodon at tallyroomatmastodon.au or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to the tallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Christopher for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening. 